Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 86, recorded on September 15th, 2020. Google Cloud Next Digital finally ends. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank God. <laughs> it's finally it's over. over. <laughs> the long national nightmare is over of the Google Cloud Next Digital event. Uh, you know, just in time for us to get to the reInvent three weeks of hell in December. Uh, that's how I sort of see it right now as they do their digital thing uh, in December. But we'll see how they go. Maybe they'll be a little bit more uh, crisp in the content. What great value for money, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> get what you pay for. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of was kind of a, you know, if that had been what they announced on stage at Google Cloud Next in the keynotes, uh, I'm not sure that people would have been super thrilled with their announcements this year. I think, you know, because they were spaced out in the way they were, maybe I just lost excitement for it. But I just felt like overall it was kind of boring. So nothing really revolutionary or anything that I thought was like really amazing. I mean, I, they're really excited about those uh, secure instances and, and which is cool, but I don't know that's revolutionary. That's my, uh, you know, I don't know. I just feel like I go to reinvent and I get wowed and I go to, you know, you listen to Microsoft build, you get wowed. They're doing a lot of really cool stuff. And then Google just sort of like, meh, we're here. Yeah. I guess it's going to get harder and harder to, to wow people like that though. with such, such uh, dramatic improvements in technology. Especially when the, you're, when you're not the leader, your kind of your first responsibility is to catch up, and by definition, all of the me too's we don't wow us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm impressed when they come to Google, and, and Google has interesting takes on. Look at the VMware announcement. No, sorry, it was Oracle. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> them, but you know, Oracle's announcement about you know the last us two on the VMware thing. You know, they were very clearly you know trying to differentiate themselves that they don't do as much managed services. So there are there are opportunities even as a third party mover to do something different, and I feel. Google hasn't really embraced that opportunity. Hopefully they will. Hopefully. They have a whole year to figure it out now. Yeah. Well, uh, we are without Ryan uh, for the next couple of weeks here as he's on vacation. So, you know, I don't know where he's going in COVID, but apparently somewhere away from us, which I don't blame him. <laughs> so motorcycling in the desert. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that seems like a good place to go, yep. actually. Yeah, up to Oregon. Yeah, eastern yeah, Oregon. It's definitely a great way to uh, socially distance on a bike by yourself. So there you go. Well, if you uh, see, if you happen to see Ryan in, in Oregon, I, I, I'm a little sorry going to Oregon though because it is on fire. But yeah, you know, hey, Oregon, horrendous. Whatever trip, whatever choice he makes is is choice. So there you go. All right, well, let's get to the news. We have a lot to cover this week. Uh, we did skip last week. Uh, for those of you playing at home, we're like, wait a minute. It's been two weeks since an episode is because we took a week off for Labor Day. So you're welcome. Uh, but we're back here with episode 86. So first up is Chef uh, has been acquired by Progress, uh, which is the beginning of the new chapter in Chef's history. Uh, they were acquired for $220 million in an all-cash deal. Uh, they had previously raised uh, quite a bit of money, though. So I'm not really sure anyone made any money there, particularly the employees. Uh, which is a bit of an interesting uh, challenge considering they were a big unicorn there for a while in the DevOps space and really driving a lot of things. Uh, Progress, if you've never heard of them, owns things like Kinvi, Syfinity, Kendo, UI, Telerik, MoveIt, OpenEdge, and What's Up Gold for a little bit of a flashback to my old yeah. days in IT. A little What's <laughs> Up Gold there for you. Uh, like I mentioned, they did raise $100 million over its lifetime, so $220 million exits, only two times what they got invested in, so that's a, that's a bummer. Uh, Shopper Proly has $72 million in uh, revenue for the trailing 12 months ending in June, and uh, 95% of Chef's revenue is recurring with over 700 corporate customers, including Ford, GM, Nordstrom's, and many more. Yeah, that, that price seems so low when you look at their recurring revenue and what I'd have to imagine are effectively software-based margins. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, they must have a real cash flow issue going on there or they're maybe just poor outlook based on their new strategy mm. maybe the support I mean, costs I, are too I, high I, I think they've sort of lost their way a little bit in some ways i mean salt stack came out and it was really a big thing and that kind of died off and then ansible's really kind of taken over the world and i don't really know they've kind of had a good play to compete with ansible in a big way 
but uh, you know, it's definitely interesting. It's you know, kind of sad in one way because they were really the beginning of a big move towards cloud native and really, you know, infrastructure as code. I mean, I know Puppet came before them, but this is really the the Puppet version two, <laughs> which was much better than the original that came before it. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people up there at Opscode Chef up in Seattle back in the day, and I'm sure they are, you know, either bittersweet about this or you know, curious to see where progress takes them. But uh, we will find out soon enough. Yeah, I've not been a, a great fan of Chef. It's I think it's overly complex and it's it's. Well, I think the, the thing that surprised me most about this announcement is that I have no idea who it is that's buying them. Like I expected it to be some uh, well-known company, but like IBM. Is, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could, seriously, it could, yeah. it could be it could be anyone, right? I mean, it, it could be anyone that, that, that's sort of uh, familiar to us in the in the, the current sort of tech space. I kind of I kind of just heard like. BMC or you know computer associates, you know kind of companies that specialize in IT tooling would pick them up. Uh, as I think those are, you know, companies that kind of buy these type of IT companies all the time. And uh, yeah. that was the part that surprised me was that it wasn't BMC or CA. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird weird choice of of buyer. Yeah. Well, best of luck to them. I know they're continuing to uh, you know innovate in the space and try to do different things with Habitat and others. And hopefully they uh, they continue to figure it out. Yeah, I was a big fan of what they were doing with InSpec, but uh, we'll see what happens now. Yeah, I definitely think InSpec is probably their the biggest uh, growth engine they have of all their stuff. So, you know, again, that's the one that I care about the most of all their products. Although Chef Client was a big deal for me back in the day when I used to do DevOps pretty heavily. So, you know, I, a little bittersweet. <laughs> my my Chef Ruby skills will uh, no longer be needed, I guess. All right. Well, let's move on to Jedi. It's been a big couple weeks in Jedi world. Uh, first of all, the Pentagon has reaffirmed that Microsoft has won Jedi. Uh, <laughs> Amazon, of course, uh, still says they're, they're appealing, and they still have appeals pending. Uh, but the Pentagon announced that they have issued a statement that after its internal review confirmed Microsoft as the rightful winner of the contract known as Jedi. The department has completed its comprehensive reevaluation of Jedi Cloud proposals and determined that Microsoft's proposal continues to represent the best value to the government. Uh, while a contract performance will not be again immediately due to the preliminary injunction ordered issued by the Court of Federal Claims on February 13, 2020, DOD is eager to begin deliver, delivering this capability to our men and women in uniform. Of course, this is all driven by Amazon's earlier lawsuits. This one was particularly around uh, a specific area where they said the criteria for use for evaluation was flawed and that they did not feel it was really in the right order of operations for the DOD and the procurement process. Uh, Microsoft issued a statement uh, when this came out saying, we appreciate that after careful review, the DOD confirmed that we offered the right technology at the best value, ready to get to work and make sure that those who serve our country have access to this much-needed technology. Well, I mean, nobody can say that the government is uh, the most efficient at doing anything, so and picking the second best cloud vendor is probably right in line with uh, where they are. <laughs> yeah. It does, feel, it does feel a bit par for the course. It does, yeah. Yeah. Good enough for government work, I guess. Good enough. <laughs> well, of course, you know, Amazon, Amazon took this, this news in stride, right, with, you know, and said, congratulations, Microsoft, and, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors. I'm sorry, that's not what happened. <laughs> they, wrote, <laughs> they wrote a scathing blog post uh, from the public sector team. It doesn't even have a name on the blog post, but uh, yeah. a harshly worded blog post. AWS has responded to the Pentagon reaffirmation of Azure. AWS contends the DOD had the opportunity to address numerous material evaluation errors outlined in their protest, ensure a fair and level playing field, and ultimately expedite the conclusion of the litigation. AWS says that the DOD rejected that opportunity. Uh, AWS contended originally that this is nothing more than a do-over for Microsoft to fix this non-compliant proposal. And AWS felt that the award would, again, be based on policy, politics and improper influence and not based on relative strengths of the two offerings. Uh, AWS points out the DoD cited a ma- price as a major factor in the previous decision, and AWS offered a lower cost by several tens of millions of dollars. Uh, not considering their discount, just as further proof to AWS that the process was never meant to be fair. There you go. Well, yeah, life's not fair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. you got to think they're all they're doing is uh, keep the lawsuit going in hopes that uh, there's an election and there's a change of leadership and the new leadership uh, wants to make a statement about the old leadership and maybe suddenly this uh, gets reevaluated again and changed again. You never know. I, I hope not. I honestly, I think. 
I think it needs to be done. I mean, we've had the podcast now for almost two years, and we've been talking about Jedi for two years. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, you know, I think it, they're somewhat right that you know the DoD needs to move forward and start offering the services and capabilities of the cloud to their to their business and and all those things. So we will okay. definitely see. Yeah, can you imagine if every single time a decision was made, this is this was the process to get it resolved? Is the loser files a lawsuit? And continues I mean, filing lawsuits. I sort, I sort of feel like that's how our politics are today. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm looking forward to lawsuits in November after the election, no matter oh who my wins. God. I, yeah. you know, this is going to be a mess. So. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Moving on to uh, just Amazon news in general, uh, one of the things they did uh, mention, which I forgot to say here in the uh, Jedi contract, is that they uh, they pointed to the fact that they have been the leader in the Magic Quadrant for the last 10 years uh, with over 9,500 customers. And guess what? It's a time for a new Magic Quadrant. So that's always exciting. Uh, Amazon, of course, still handily sits to the top right of the Magic Quadrant in the firm lead position. Uh, AWS, Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, Oracle, IBM, and Tencent Cloud all made it onto the Quadrant this time around, with Google, MS, and AWS as the only leaders. Uh, Alibaba Cloud is the closest to crossing out of the niche quadrant to the leader quadrant, uh, even beating out Oracle. So Oracle's not even close to number four. Even, even beating out Oracle. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not hard to do. Uh, so I did want to kind of summarize here some of the weaknesses. I don't care about the pros. The pros are worthless. Uh, but the, uh, the weaknesses are kind of interesting. So for Amazon, uh, Gartner contends that the growing concerns about Amazon's size and reach, coupled with AWS leadership position, give pause some of its partners and customers, uh, particularly around the OSS community, something we talked about here many, many times, uh, and how they treat open source software. So apparently Gartner thinks that's a detractor. Uh, again, it might become an issue if antitrust becomes a big deal for Amazon. Um, but you know, right now I feel like I'm benefiting from the, this open source, uh, you know, thing. So I'm I'm sort of sad about it, sort of okay about it too. Uh, Amazon Web Services has a poor cohesion across its ever-expanding set of offerings. The company's leadership position in I, infrastructure as a service, and DB platforms as a service creates a misleading halo effect for their other offerings. The organization design of AWS that allows its developers to operate as a semi-autonomous unit creates inconsistencies among products rather than a cohesive whole, particularly for new services, uh, which uh, just based on the UIs, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then uh, customers continue to believe incorrectly that AWS reduces prices broadly. However, the decreases are often not universally applied across all services or very regionally specific. Uh, for example, the most frequently provisioned storage for AWS Compute Service has not experienced a price reduction since 2014, nearly half the life of the company, despite dramatically decreasing prices in the market for the raw components. Yeah, but with uh, so. inflation, with inflation, <laughs> it's still a price decrease, right? If it's not, if it's not an increase in, in the dollar per unit amount, it's still, it's still a decrease with inflation. And it's, you know, what percent of the cost of a total managed service like that is the raw disk? Mm. That's probably a pretty amount. small percentage. I mean, in reading the the builders' uh, documentation on S3 and how they do recovery and sharding and all that, it's 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 more than just raw disk. <laughs> so. No, yeah. Uh, Azure also got dinged uh, on several different areas here. The first one being Microsoft has the lowest ratio of availability zones to regions of any vendor in the Magic Quadrant, and a limited set of services support the availability zone model. Uh, and as a result, Gardner continues to have concerns that relate to the overall architecture and implementation of Azure. Despite resilience-focused engineering efforts and blog posts, and improved service availability metrics during the year, uh, Microsoft does not provide any form of guaranteed capacity to customers, even prepaid agreements. And Microsoft's unified support can be very expensive, especially for those customers who have not historically had support services covering their entire Microsoft portfolio. Uh, so that, uh, that's Gardner's take on Azure. What do you guys think? Yeah, the guaranteed capacity is definitely, uh, with a lack of that, definitely a huge weakness. For I would imagine for a significant amount of workloads. I mean, specifically, they call out the COVID nineteen issues. 
and their yeah. inability to provide capacity in Europe uh, during the multi-week period. So, yeah, you know, if things you we talk about here on the podcast. So, if you want guaranteed capacity, then just buy it now, make it yours, own it. It's yours when you need it. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a it's it's a weird position to be in, I guess. But if you if you want to own something, then then pay for it now. Why should they? Why should they say? Oh, sure, you can have this if you want to choose to pay for it in the future. But like you're not guaranteed a, it. I, I don't think you're guaranteed anything, even if you're currently running it. Right? An instance dies, and then you go to respin up a new one, and a new instance doesn't come up because there's but an I, error. Hmm. Right? I, I mean, mean, I think I think part of the problem there too is that you. Yeah, they said flat out during COVID that they were prefer- giving preferential treatment to healthcare and to other serv- critical services they deem to, critical. To existing customers, they said. Yeah. Yeah, to existing customers in those particular verticals and other yeah. existing customers. I mean, the order of operations was healthcare, hmm. existing customer, net new customer. <laughs> so that you know, that's a challenge. Um, you know, but again, I think that's you know just one of those situations where they have to get better and they have to do a better job at managing those th- kind of things. And then Google uh, had three as well. Uh, from Some of Gartner's clients remain cautious about Google's commitment to serving the needs of enterprise clients when it put it in Sorry. the context of SAP's... Sorry. Now, so Google can improve, it would help to know how satisfied you are with my response. I'm not so satisfied <laughs> with my response. If one's the worst... And Stop, fun. Google. Talk <laughs> <laughs> more or are you done? I should really unplug that thing. All right, so some of Gardner's complaints about Google uh, happen to be the commitment to serving the needs of enterprise clients when put in the context of SAP's preference for Microsoft Azure and GCP slowness in executing on some highly touted partnerships. Uh, GCP lacks enterprise focus around PaaS capabilities and support for Oracle and it continues to struggle with having an enterprise mindset in the field, which is not what I've heard from people I've talked to. Um, you know, the SAP enterprise salespeople they brought in have really helped them get more enterprise focused at least from what I've heard so it's kind of interesting to see that show up in Gartner's report this year again and then from a financial perspective GCP's revenue is a small fraction of overall Google revenue and GCP's criticality to the overall business is not as clear as its competitors furthermore GCP's success may erode the company's overall healthy gross margins and then Google's much vaunted network capabilities have been the source of a number of GCP outages during the last year, with devastating impact on customers. One outage was a multi-regional in scope, affecting GCP customers and Google consumer services such as G Suite and YouTube. This results in a complete GCP network unavailability for their customers. So things that we've all beaten up GCP on here on the show. Yep. <laughs> Gardner so has the, an amazing grasp of the obvious. Or they listen to the podcast, one of the two. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> There's just little attributions at the bottom of it. <laughs> I wonder where they run their uh, their data from in the cloud or a private data center, or maybe it's just pencils and pencils and paper and notepads and things. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean they're just telling people advice. What do they need to? What do they need to tell people? So any uh, any other questions about the magic quadrant you guys want to talk about here? Or I can tell you about Alibaba. I can tell you about any of them. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised about Alibaba actually getting getting the kind of niche uh, label because they're, they're actually pretty pretty big, but just just not in the the West, I guess. Well, they talk about you know they're huge in China, but they don't have much market traction elsewhere, and that's really yeah. what's kind of holding them back uh, per the report. So I think that's why yeah. they they got that. Um, you know, I was I was kind of complaining on Twitter actually about this report and that. You know, they're saying, well, it's kind of the companies you expect to see. And it's, it's really because the inclusiveness of this report is really you have to have all of these things to be included uh, from an infrastructure service perspective. And I think that's tough for smaller vendors like Wasabi or DigitalOcean or others to be able to break into the magic quadrant in any sizable way because they they're eliminated because they don't have an RDS offering or they don't have something other than East. You know, but if you look into specific verticals of like object storage, I think there's lots of competitors to AWS and GCP and Azure, Wasabi being one of those, Backblaze being another. Um, and so I kind of hope that Gardner starts thinking about breaking up this magic quadrant. I mean, they can still have an overarching one, but I do think there are opportunities um, for more defined, smaller magic quadrants for some of the some of the key areas like storage or S3 or, or object storage um, or managed database platforms, et cetera. I think that would be helpful to the market in general because I think there are viable competitors that aren't these companies, uh, but you just don't get to see them in the quadrant today. Yeah, right. I mean, it very much depends on what they mean by, by, by cloud, right? I mean... It's a, a very specific definition that they're that they're adhering to. And this that is excludes IAS. These people. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's the magic quadrant. But I even IAAS is, yeah. I mean, I, if, if I don't need that. a database, then yeah. why do I care? Why why should those people be excluded? Correct. Or you know, I really want compute, and I don't care about Kubernetes, or I don't care about platform as a service. Like, why should they be eliminated from this quadrant? I don't get it. Because they didn't pay. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of it too, but that's yeah. a whole different conversation. All right. Well, let's move on to other things here. Amazon CloudFront has announced support for TLS version 1.3 for viewer connections. Uh, they support uh, – this is something I complained about in June that uh, S2N, which is their open source implementation of OpenSSL, uh, was already supporting TLS 1.3 but had not made it into any of their products. Uh, now at CloudFront, you can get better performance with a simple handshake process that requires fewer round trips with TLS version 1.3, uh, requiring only one round trip versus the two round trips of TLS version 1.2. Uh, again, this is uh, – TLS 1.3 also removes legacy features and older cipher suites that are present in previous versions of TLS. And TLS also supports perfect forward secrecy cipher suites that generate a one-time key used only for the current network session. Uh, this is available to you now at no additional char- charge uh, on all your CloudFront security options. You know, people often talk about how fast technology moves, but TLS 1.3 has been discussed and it's been sort of um, fairly well nailed down for, for a couple of years. Um, and one of the biggest changes that they made in TLS 1.3 was that um, SNI, which is which is a, a sort of a, a, it used to be an unencrypted signal, so that you could look at the packet and you can see well which um, which domain you're trying to reach, so I know which um, encryption key to use. Uh, it, it's, it's been great for you know low balances or virtual hosting and things like that, but but TLS 1.3 has implemented uh, encrypted SNI. Which has caused the Chinese government to completely block all uh, websites now outbound from China, which use uh, encrypted SNI. It's going to cause a, a bit of bit of pain for people um, in, in private data centers or in, in cloud environments who rely on being able to to see the the unencrypted SNI information in the packets. Um, it's I mean it's a good move for privacy, but uh, it's going to cause a lot of pain for a lot of people. That's no fun. No. <laughs> well, Why it was a downer. <laughs> I'm not a downer. I, mean, I, guess, a downer. I guess it's going to make that uh, that VPC packet copy feature irrelevant if none of the packets are unencrypted that they can look at. Yeah. So I, mean, I mean, the the, the recipient, the, the person who decrypts the, the, the TLS stream can still see the SNI information and they can still route the, the, the packets to where they're supposed to go. But it means that an external observer cannot watch that stream and see which website you're trying to watch. Which well, I mean, that's how a lot to? of uh, that's how a lot of security tools do. You know, they do packet capturing in the middle, trying yep. to detect you know unknown unknown patterns. And if they can't see that data, that might help hinder some of those tools. So I'll be Definitely. interested to see I mean, how that a, pans out. A, a combination of this and uh, DNSSEC as well, which encrypts DNS traffic, is is going to be fairly devastating to the the current security tool industry. They're going to have to retool. Ooh, that'll be fun though. Yeah. New companies to yep. compete with them without the baggage yep. of existing product. Revenue, right? For sure. Well, your Amazon CloudWatch can now monitor Prometheus metrics from your container environments. Uh, Another sign that Kubernetes has taken over the world, AWS has joined Google in acknowledging that Prometheus is the K8 uh, Kubernetes monitoring tool of choice. Uh, You can use CloudWatch to monitor Prometheus metrics for ECS, EKS, Fargate, and Kubernetes clusters directly, now publicly available. With this new feature, DevOps teams can automatically discover services for containerized workloads such as AWS AppMesh and Java JMX applications. And you can also expose custom metrics on those services and ingest Prometheus metrics in CloudWatch. Yeah, so you can pay for the ingest twice. <laughs> so you'll get you'll get data from CloudWatch first, and then you'll get to pay for it when it goes into uh, Prometheus and gets sucked back into CloudWatch again. So that's great. I want to see how this is going to help them because we I mean, we end up having to do Prometheus in all of our uh, Kubernetes environments. So it should simplify our configs. Might be worth the money. Might be. You never know. How, how do you like Prometheus? Out of curiosity. Um, it's all monitoring to me. <laughs> the engineers seem to think it's cool. All right. Fair <laughs> all right. Uh, so the Washington Post, which is sort of interesting, had an article by Jay Green uh, talking about Bezos as likely Amazon's successor. Um, you know, this isn't really news, but it was in the Washington Post, which happens to be owned by Bezos. 
which is a weird that they would allow this article to happen. But uh, for more speculative rumors, this article would be the good source to look at. The article contends that if Bezos were to retire, the natural successor would be Andy Jassy after the departure of Jeff Wilk, who decided to retire next year. Now, of course, I don't know if they're the great successors, considering Bezos is 56, uh, Andy is 52, and Jeff was 53. So it's like not like any of these would be really long-term successors of any kind, <laughs> if any of them are going to be that. Uh, but, of course, Andy Jassy is the executive who led Amazon.com into the AWS world and is very close here to the show to us. Uh, Andy embodies the culture of Amazon and has embodied what it would be to build, what it is to be a builder there. Uh, of course, there are no plans for Bezos to step away right now, which, again, this means this is kind of a very speculative article. However, he has been focusing more on th- philanthropic endeavors and other bets like Space Company and The Washington Post. Uh, and while Andy may be a good successor, he is not deeply involved in Amazon's retail operations. Uh, but on the flip side, apparently Bezos doesn't pay much attention to AWS either. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's the right thing if uh, AWS's revenues continue to grow and surpass the store in some way. But uh, it's kind of interesting to me just because I thought, you know, it's interesting it's in The Washington Post. It's owned by Jeff. And it's almost like, is this a... Is this something they try to float out to the market to see how people would react to it? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'll happily take over for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know. I agree, though. I mean, all three of those guys, I couldn't yeah. imagine with the amount of money they've made on mm-hmm. Amazon stock that any of them would want to be long timers in that job. Well, I mean, I, I can see maybe doing it for a little while, but then, you know, you, you know, you want to retire too, right? Like, that's what Bezos I mean. goes off. I mean, like that's why you have you know, Balmer only lasted ten years after Bill retired, but Bill retired at forty, or something around forty, maybe forty four. Um, you know, and then you brought Sacha in, and Sacha's much much younger uh, than those guys were, and that makes sense because he's going to be a successor for a long period of time. That's what you want. So it's a little interesting article. I, I wonder if it would be maybe Warner Vogels, but he's uh, he's sixty one, so he's closer to retirement than any of them. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see what happens on that side too someday. Speaking of uh, Amazon Spaces uh, or space policy, they've uh, made a couple of different changes. So the first one is AWS has appointed former White House official Peter Marquez as its first director of space policy, the latest sign of how big a focus the space sector is becoming for the cloud giant. Uh, Marquez served as a director of space policy for the White House National Security Council under Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Uh, he's also held senior positions in a number of private sector companies, including Orbital Sciences Corp. Uh, between AWS Ground Station and Project Cooper, there's a lot of policy that needs to be written in the space space, uh, space sector, as well as they have also announced that retired Air Force Major General Clint Crozier is now in charge of the aerospace unit inside of AWS. Uh, so these are two big powerhouse uh, hires to help them really build out their aerospace business. Yeah, it's it, it sounds like... Uh I just can't get over the fact that Amazon has a space division. <laughs> it's just so weird. Yeah. Well, they have just... Ground Station, which was first, right, to talk to satellites. And then they, the Project Cooper is their desire to get low-Earth orbiting satellites to uh, deliver Internet to you. Uh, so, for your, so your house uh, Internet will be much better, Peter, in the future when you can connect to the I Cooper could never satellites. Use, I could never use satellites because of the latency. It would demolish my chances at... Shooting twelve-year-olds on Call of Duty. <laughs> well, look at the SpaceX um, internet. Rip, um, what the hell? The SpaceX uh, benchmarks. They've, they've got like thirty-second, thirty-millisecond latency and a uh, hundred megabits a second download speed. So it's 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 pretty it's pretty good. Like it's it's. Um, Can you get thirty millisecond latency? At that's how so high low. up are those things? We're low Earth orbit, so they're, 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 they're not that low, far. Very low. Yeah. Huh, okay, and then maybe I will go for it. Yeah. Love nothing more than to call Comcast and say I cancel. <laughs> please <laughs> just <laughs> stay, stay on for one more month. We'll, we'll comp you the month. It's, it's like AOL exactly. from years ago. Like, please, no, just stay. Please. Five dollars. Um, Three dollars. A dollar. <laughs> stay. <laughs> we'll give you six months free. Just don't go away. Please yeah. stay with us. I, I mean, it makes sense that that. That um, that Amazon are working on the same thing as SpaceX. Yeah, just I, I think connectivity so. to the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, of course, they, Amazon makes so much money they could just buy Tesla. Yeah, they could <laughs> do. Yeah, they could just solve this problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
AWS single sign-on adds account assignment APIs and AWS CloudFormation support to automate multi-account access management. Uh, this is the ability for use APIs to retrieve permissions programmatically for audit and government purposes, and the new release enables you to automate control of the AWS SSO central permissions, making it easier to manage access at scale across all of your AWS accounts. Uh, an example use case would be uh, you give your developers broad control over resources in a developer account, and then limit that control to authorized operations personnel and a production account all through your SSO enablement versus doing it at the IAM level. So there you go. Yeah, and do it with APIs. So now we can, you know, a lot of that stuff, you end up going in and clicking around in the console instead of being able to terraform that layer. Yep. So it's super helpful. Like Mostly it drives me nuts. The API <laughs> first was always the rule. I don't know when it, when that, just when that rule got broken, but thank God they got this. When they started supporting Windows, Peter. <laughs> it's just, it's Windows' fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know when that actually happened. But, uh, you know, I I find that doing IAM policies in Terraform is awful anyways. But <laughs> yeah, I typically, I typically go to the console and I create my policy, then I just copy and paste that to my Terraform. I'm like, okay, this is what I want. <laughs> exactly. trying to do it any other way would be crazy sauce. That's cool, as long as it ends up in the Terraform so you don't have to then have some documentation somewhere else reminding you how to recreate it if it goes away. Yeah, it was, it was actually really fun. I was uh, working on a project with another developer, uh, and he was making changes, and I was making changes to fix what he was breaking on the fly, and then, mm-hmm. you know, I had to figure out what he did, and it was just a Terraform plan. Oh, okay, I, I changed these five settings, and I changed them in my code, and now I'm good to go, and yep. it's now part of the repo, so it was great. It's awesome. Yeah, super fun. Well, uh, Jonathan, we got a new Graviton uh, pr- uh, server for you here. The new EC2 T4G instances. Uh, these yep. are, of course, based on the AWS Graviton uh, processors. The T4G instances are designed for workloads that don't use CPU at full power most of the time, using the same credit models as T3 instances with unlimited mode enabled by default. Uh, all customers are apparently automatically enrolled in a free trial that includes the T4G Micro until December 31st, 2020. And then after that, you'll either pay between $3.12 per hour for the T4G Nano, uh, all the way up to uh, $199.98 for the T4G.2x large uh, instance type. So that is pretty cool. I'm super excited about the T4G Nano at $3.12. Uh, per I'll hour or per month? Per month. That's per month. Yeah. It's a okay. 0.0042 yes. cents per hour. I, it's hard to tell you guys cents when they're in micro cents uh, at this point. Three bucks a month. I love it. It's, it's crazy. Like it, It's such a weird um, like dichotomy between serverless and event-driven things and, well, do you just keep the thing running constantly? Like why why would you choose to to to, to, to do serverless and all the all the complications around event driven infrastructure when you can literally pay three dollars a month to have this thing running constantly? Because then you have to manage it, right? Uh, yeah, oh, you do so. you need to patch it and all that kind of stuff. But it's an yeah. ARM processor, so is it going to be as attacked as other you know other platforms like it's like the Mac uh, story? I, 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 and they're going to run WordPress on yeah. it, and then you're going to have some yeah. crazy yeah, plug in. <laughs> fair, fair. Touche, touche. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. That's that three hundred twelve cents is on demand pricing, so you actually get a discount on that if you want to do RIs. That's crazy. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, AWS and Docker are extending their collaboration to launch new features from the Docker desktop. Uh, you can now write natively to ECS and Fargate. That's been there for a couple weeks now, or at least a month or so. Uh, but this update adds the ability to use AWS Secrets Manager with Docker Compose and associate your CLIs, as well as allows you to update your running ECS services all from the Docker console. So for those of you who don't have separation of duties, uh, this is a great way to have your developers break production. <laughs> and enable them to fix production when they break it and they get called that's in the morning. Yep. <laughs> And then our final Amazon story is that they have now added support for EC2 security groups to support Kubernetes pods. So this is basically the ability for EKS customers to now leverage EC2 security groups to secure applications with varying network security requirements on a shared cluster of compute resources. Uh, Previously, all pods on a node shared the same security group. So it means you have these big, massive security groups uh, to allow all your things to talk to different uh, containers running different ports, potentially through a proxy or some other way. Uh, And this eliminates all of that capabilities. There were some ways to uh, avoid some of the problems. So one of the things you could do before was you could have a container access anything that uh, the IAM role allowed uh, going outbound, uh, but many organizations require more control than that, as well as they require network segmentation to provide that additional layers of depth outbound of the cluster. 
As well as on the inbound side, you could use Kubernetes network policies to provide an option for controlling traffic in the cluster, but they did not support controlling access to AWS resources outside. Uh, so now this new security rule that spans pod to pod to external AWS service traffic can be defined in a single place with these two security groups for both inbound and outbound traffic and applied to individual pods and apps within the Kubernetes APIs. And this makes it easy to achieve network security compliance and clusters that are shared across multiple teams and applications. Yeah, this was always a sticking point with high trust and dancing around it was always challenging and potentially much more costly to get a, get something through whether or not the reality of the security was any different in the environment. So this is hugely welcome when we're going through high trust uh, certification. <laughs> I think it's great. I, I'm super glad to see that there's, you know, this is IAM to the pod level, EC2 security groups to the pod level. Like yeah. you're getting the level of you're getting the level of control you need in Kubernetes to really be able to really replace your EC2 instances and some of those really tough security use cases with this capability. So this is really great. Yeah. Without having to add the complexity of a service mesh uh, to all of this. It's, it's interesting because like the security group was obviously a very specific thing within the infrastructure at one point. It, it was the ACLs, it was the network layer, but now they've sort of almost sort of uh, taken the same name and applied it to a software configuration because to, to do this thing for applications running in Kubernetes, they're obviously having to take the same information but then apply the control in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it must be, I mean, the, the, the complexity of implementing something like this is, is quite impressive. <laughs> So, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just shows you how much Amazon's investing in making Kubernetes a first, uh, you know, a first place, uh, you know, to run it as on AWS versus Google Kubernetes. Yep. All right. Well, moving on to Google. Uh, the Google Cloud documentation has a new feature that they were so excited they shared it for the last week of Google Cloud Digital Next, which, by the way, is now officially over. <laughs> finally, it's finally done. The eight weeks of Google Cloud Next Digital. Uh, are all are, are gone. They're in the past, just like the rest of 2020, because <laughs> now it's almost almost Christmas again. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> yeah, but one of the last announcements they made here was the ability for Google Cloud documentation to uh, run code samples that include placeholder variables. Uh, with this new feature, you can replace the variables in line before you even copy the snippet. Uh, and then when you paste the text into your editor or into the command line, the values are already set. Uh, you often find placeholder variables in sample REST API calls and Cloud SDK commands, including the G Cloud. Uh, G Suite and kubectl samples, uh, and you can tell a variable is edited if it has a pencil next to the variable. Uh, if there are multiple steps that have the same variable, it'll actually copy, it'll, when you fill it out, it'll do it to all of them, which is nice. Uh, and I mean, this is pretty cool, <laughs> but clearly a, show, a slow week uh, for Google Cloud Next. <laughs> can you imagine how many support calls they've calculated they're going to save by people calling and saying, I, I copy and pasted the command and it didn't work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, did exactly. you did you replace the variables? What do you mean variables? <laughs> the word that says change me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it, it was one of those like has a really benign feature, but I can definitely see it addresses a lot of support cases. So, the Google Cloud API Gateway is now available in public beta uh, to help developers focus on building code without worrying about infrastructure. Google is announcing the beta of API Gateway, a fully managed Google Cloud offering that lets you create, secure, and monitor APIs for your serverless workloads. The Google API Gateway is built on top of Envoy, giving you the high performance and scalability with both consumption-based and tiered pricing options to help you manage costs. Uh, breaking up your functionality into multiple services, which are great for developers because it adds flexibility to development scale. Uh, is a bit complicated if you don't have an API gateway. So the operational benefits of serverless with the API gateway, such as flexible deployments and scalability, so you can focus on building great applications. And you can manage APIs for multiple backends, including Cloud Functions, Cloud Run, App Engine, Compute Engine, and the Google Kubernetes Engine, all available to you behind the new API gateway. Yay. Cool. I was a little surprised that this is not just Apogee. Uh, and they're yeah. actually building a new product uh, around this. I w- I'm wondering if this is because Apogee has some scale challenges or doesn't quite meet their needs uh, for a simple API gateway solution. So, yeah, yeah very interesting. Mm. I think it's, it's a problem with all acquisitions. You, you think you know what you're going to get, but the reality is uh, always different. <laughs> There's a reason they sold it. Yeah. All right, I heard something outside. <laughs> Uh, all right, moving on to our next story. Uh, as part of the opening of Google Cloud Next 20 uh, on air, they announced the beta availability of confidential VMs, the first product in our confidential computing portfolio. And now, nine weeks later, at the end of Google Cloud Next Digital, they can now tell you that it's generally available. 
So that's kind of cool. It's also <laughs> not only is it available generally available for you uh, if you are in the government. Uh, sorry, in the uh, well, sorry. First, confidential GKE notes. The second product of confidential computing portfolio will soon be available in beta uh, for GKE. So you'll be able to get GKE uh, on top of those confidential computing nodes uh, very, very soon as well. But the confidential VMs I mentioned are generally available, and this capability will be available to all Google Cloud customers in the coming weeks, and will include new features that have been added during beta. Uh, of course, do remember that you need to use the Epic-based AMD work processors uh, to use these features. And as part of the GA, they've added new features, including audit reports for compliance, a new policy controls for confidential computing resources, integration with other enforcement mechanisms, and sharing secret security with confidential VM. Google wants me to remind you that this is game-changing technology and something that will transform the way your organization processes data in the cloud while preserving confidentiality and privacy. And now with your Kubernetes cluster, you can do it even more securely. You guys are wowed. I can just see the, wow. the amazement yeah. on your faces. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to, trying to figure out the use cases that, I haven't, that we haven't solved today without this technology and whether or not this is going to drastically simplify architectures, reduce the tools we need to use, or we're, we were just flying with... Uh, you know, insecure, unconfidential workloads, and we didn't care. I mean, someone in high trust cared, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, not. I mean, you can't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we were. You know, we have plenty of high trust certified workloads that don't require. Yeah. But were they running on GCP? Or were they running on AWS? Well, they were running on AWS. That is a good point. Yeah. See, maybe that's maybe that's the that's the secret. You needed to have something like Nitro or something else that helps you get that high trust certification in place. This is their way of doing that. Mm. Yeah, with with the uh, Graviton and Nitro, they've implemented a very similar thing with with the encryption of all VMs at rest. All the all the contents of the memory is encrypted. It's 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 um it's very similar, but just different branding, I guess. Yeah, it's just different branding. <laughs> and, you know, I think Oracle calls it the Gen 2 cloud. Yep. How amazing the Gen 2 cloud is. Oh, Oracle. Ooh. We're finally catching up to Oracle, yeah. <laughs> yeah mission TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get there, Jonathan. We'll get there. <laughs> uh, you can analyze your logs quickly with the new suggested queries beta in Google Cloud Logging. Uh, they're bringing suggestions, just like you get in Gmail to your Google Cloud Logs. Uh, suggested queries recommend... Uh, uh, recommend logs that provide context on your recent error reporting groups, alerting incidents, or other valuable logging data. Let's say you're GKE. Uh, let's say you're using GKE. Uh, you have a suggested query for this. Maybe find all the error logs from the Kubernetes control plane. Uh, suggested queries is available to you in beta. Again, final week of Google does next. They're scraping the bottom of that barrel. Yeah, that's, that's, that's hilarious. I'm like, I'm thinking uh, Google prompted me to. Have we thought about looking for a different job? <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> I know she's the one that I do it. like, I did, the one I do like is when you're you say I've attached this file to you for you to review in this email, and it says you didn't actually attach a file. Like yeah. that's the best one they have of yeah. any of them, because yeah. that's my number one mistake in email. It's like oh, I forgot to attach it. It'd be interesting to see how many of those suggested uh, queries end up being something like, uh, "Are you still in AWS? Maybe how would I get off of AWS?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the um, that's you know wraps up Google Cloud Next Digital Week Nine, Week Eight, whatever this week is. Uh, you know, what did you guys think overall of the uh, the conference? Uh, were you wowed? Were you amazed? Were you were you impressed? I I just think that over that much time, it's not a conference. It's um, a, it's a just a, a quarterly uh, drip campaign of content that we should get. With or without a conference, so yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm uh, I think it was kind of cool for them to try something different, you know, saying that okay, you know, we're we're not all showing up in one place, so we're not bound by the rules of that. Um, I just don't think it worked. I, I kind of have the same feeling. I my my take was you know, look at the Apple event that happened today, and they announced new iPhones, or sorry, not new iPhones, uh, new watches and new iPads. Um, and, you know, and it was an hour and a half or two hours, and they walked you through a bunch of new features, and then you know, you're off to the races. A really highly polished three- or four-hour video from uh, Google for a keynote would have done exactly the same thing, and I would have been just as happy. And if I had been at 
Google Cloud Next Live, and I had actually watched the keynote, and they would announced the you know the things they announced over the nine weeks on the main stage. I don't know that I would have been wowed. So. I just I think uh, you know it, it's a bit of a challenge <laughs> to make these yeah. digital conferences work in the way we think they should. It, it's, yep. it's, it's almost like they don't want to lose the momentum of the brand of Google Next. You know, they, they don't want to have to say that they skipped it this year. They they wanted to, to make something of it, but they they just didn't do a good job of making it what it should have been. Yeah, well, I think. We've seen companies started to opt out. Dreamforce, you know, canceled their conference and said, you know, we're not going to do the big spectacle. You know, we're not going to do a multi-week conference. I, you know, AWS is doing three weeks, but are they doing three weeks because the problem is they were supposed to start the first week of December and three weeks later is Christmas. Yeah. And they don't want a conference that goes over Christmas. Um, you know, I, I, again, I'm curious to see how Amazon does it differently and if they do anything, they take the lessons learned from maybe their summits and some of the other things. Uh, because I, I definitely, I think there's a way to do it. I just don't think anyone's cracked the way yet. Yeah. I think I, if anything, do, do the binge style and just release all the content all the classes, yep. everything on one day. Like make it a one day conference, and then it's all available from then on, yeah. moving forward, and and eat what you want. And maybe you get some blog posts, you know, pointing people to specific content or things to look out for, or you know, partner with podcasts and stuff like us to help you know spread the word on these new features and new capabilities. I think those are options. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what Amazon does. We'll see what Microsoft does on their conferences coming up, and uh, hopefully, we get a bit of a different uh, different spin on things. Well, moving on to Azure, uh, they were busy this last couple of weeks. Uh, first up, they have announced the Azure Spring Cloud, a fully managed platform for Spring Boot apps, is now generally available on Azure. Uh, Azure Spring Cloud can let you focus on building the apps that run your business without the hassle of managing infrastructure. Azure Spring Cloud is jointly built, operated, and supported by Microsoft and VMware. Uh, VMware owns Spring Boot. I don't know if you guys knew that, because <laughs> no one ever seems to know that. I didn't uh, know simply that. Depl- Simply deploy your jars or code, and Azure Spring Cloud will automatically wire your apps with the Spring Service runtime. And once deployed, you can easily monitor application performance, fix errors, and rapidly improve applications. Uh, Azure Spring Cloud platform is available in 10 regions across four continents, with 10 more regions coming in the upcoming months. Uh, some of the features include distributed tracing, Azure Spring Cloud managed and virtual network, drive higher utilization of apps in the Azure Spring Cloud with auto-scaling, and build your solutions today all on the Azure Cloud. Uh, for each app instance you set up, you'll be charged for one standard vCPU and memory group duration, which equals 32 keys of memory and 16 vCPUs. And if you exceed either or both of the capacities of the standard, you will be charged for additional usage on the total standard overage memory duration and standard overage CPU duration, which is a pricing model only VMware and Microsoft could love. <laughs> I, I love the concept, though. The PaaS is the way to go if you could if you could make it work. If you could solve all the challenges that people need to solve in order to run their app. How great if you could just get push and be done with it. I mean, what is this basically? Um, elastic Beanstalk for Azure. I mean, it's sort of, but it's Spring versus Beanstalk, which is multiple things. Um, so yeah, you can just deploy your jar to them, and they'll take care of everything else for you. So like it is Heroku. very Beanstalk like, yeah, sort more of more Heroku like, I bet. Hopefully, mm. hopefully, that's Beanstalk more Heroku. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think we talked about in the past that uh, Azure was going to start looking at your AWS bills and make it easier for you to visualize your AWS spend on top of Azure's amazing BI reporting capabilities. Uh, and so for those of you who've been wanting this amazing feature, uh, this is now available to you as generally available. Uh, Azure, uh, the, uh, AWS and Azure Cost Management Connector and Billing is now generally available. And it's easy setting up the cur on AWS, creating a role policy on AWS and an API user with that role policy to access the cur from uh, Azure. And then you can view your AWS costs in three scopes, an AWS uh, linked account under management groups, AWS linked account costs and AWS consolidated account costs. Uh, once you have the data, you can set up future spending using forecasting capabilities and setting up budget alerts for your AWS costs. Uh, this is free for all customers on September 1st, 2020 for the first 90 days. And then you should cancel it <laughs> because they're going to charge you 1% of your total AWS spend to analyze the cur file. That's ridiculous. Which, oh, my God. Which is crazy town to me. <laughs> so, like, I, I hate cloud health and uh, cloud, you know, all these guys who do this cost magic because they want, like, 2 to 3% of your bill. 1% is better than them, so they're going to try to undercut that market. But 1% of your Amazon spend is crazy I mean, I can, I can for get forecasting and visualizations. I'm sorry. I get a charge per line item. I mean, I, I get a charge per, per, per resource that you analyze or something, but a charge per how much the other guy charges, that's just crazy. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how the cloud health and these other vendors in the cloud, you know, cost management space do it. But, you know, they're they're making recommendations for you for RIs. They're making recommendations for you for other ways to save money. So their argument is that you are saving more money than you're spending with us. Uh, even though I think I still think that pricing model sucks. I hate that pricing model. Oh, yeah. uh, but the fact that you know Azure thinks that they can charge you one percent, and then they're going to take this data and they're going to try to sell you on Azure how you can do it cheaper <laughs> on Azure, right? Like it's it's the, like you're paying for their own sales lead. It's I wonder if they add me. that price, the one percent, to your uh, individualization <laughs> to your AWS cost because it would go away if you moved that to Azure. Mm. <laughs> mm, maybe they do. Maybe they do. So I. If anyone's using this, I would love to <laughs> love to talk to you because I, I think this is crazy town. Uh, but uh, especially when the, the pricing at one percent, I was like, that is nuts. Uh, so yeah, do try it out for ninety days and then turn it off before you get a really big bill. Yep. Uh, okay, so when we go to next, right? You can now access all the caches under your Azure subscription and view the data right from Visual Studio Code with the Azure Cache for Redis data uh, extension. Uh, you know, separation of duties be damned. With this new integration, you'll be able to use VS Code to view, test, and debug your caches in one streamlined experience. This extension enhances easy uh, ease of development by elimination of the need to manually track connection and access keys to connect to your caches, and simply authenticate to Azure, and you'll be able to take down your entire production system in just a few simple clicks. Don't worry about security. Don't worry about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a hard time like figuring out what the use case is for this. Really, I mean, seeing what's in the cache, like you should know what's in the cache. You put it there. Well, when you wrote, right, when you when you copy and paste your code from uh, you know the internet and you put it into your app and then it breaks your app in a way you didn't expect, you gotta know how it corrupted your data. Oh my god! Right? Oh, yeah. Just showing the Stack Overflow is driving most of development in the world. That seems like it. Uh, well, uh, Nutanix, uh, which is a hyperconverged infrastructure vendor, has kicked off their annual conference with news they have signed a deal with Microsoft Azure. Now, this is a hardware vendor signing a deal with Azure which is a cloud vendor. So that's a little bit interesting. Uh, apparently Nutanix will develop, develop Nutanix-ready nodes on Azure to support Nutanix clusters and services because if you really like that hyper-converged thing on-premise, you're going to love it in the cloud. Uh, it will also allow Nutanix users to manage Azure, at least for chores like creating and controlling Azure instances from, their, uh, from the Nutanix tools. Uh, they also have a cross-licensing benefit to allow Azure customers to splurge on Nutanix software with a Microsoft Azure consumption commitment and vice versa. And from a Microsoft perspective, it's great to have Azure on demand. From Nutanix, it's good to be a partner with a top-tier public cloud vendor. There you go. So Nutanix, if you're using it on-prem, you can now use it in Azure in a big way. So confusing. Right? I, I don't really so understand confused. that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's Everybody's just grabbing to try to – I don't know if it's just these are all hedges. But, yeah, they don't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. Yeah, I'm still why can't you just do it with the APIs? I'm still relevant. <laughs> yes, that's uh, yeah. Hardware, you know, hardware vendors have to find a new way to to make money, I guess, in the future world of the cloud. So, and then the uh, last report from Azure is uh, you can now use cost allocation uh, available in Preview for enterprise agreements and Microsoft customer agreements accounts on Azure. And with cost allocations, you can break up costs depending on the share, direct to cost center, or split between cost centers by percentages or amounts. So you get bill back. You're welcome. <laughs> It's kind of crazy. Seriously, that one for the lightning round. Yeah, really. All right. And then uh, we have an Oracle story this week. Oracle. So, Oracle, yeah. All right. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you have children, uh, you might have heard about this uh, little, little social network uh, called TikTok, uh, which is very popular with the tweens these days and the, and the teens. Uh, apparently, you know, Mr. Trump, uh, President Trump, does not appreciate uh, the TikTok. And has been fighting to ban it. And so Microsoft originally was in reports to win this deal uh, to purchase it uh, outright from a company called ByteDance, which actually owns TikTok, uh, their Chinese entity. Uh, but apparently Oracle has swooped in at the last minute and reportedly run the right to be their trusted tech partner. Uh, so I guess it's not really a sale. It's more like an agreement. And Oracle will ensure that TikTok is on the up and up legally. Uh, I mean, they have lawyers at Oracle, so I guess they're good at that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but basically, they'll become the technology platform for TikTok. They'll ensure that TikTok uses uh, all U.S. data stays inside the United States and is not sold to the Chinese government in any way. Uh, of course, this is, uh, has to be reviewed by ByteDance and the Chinese government to be approved, as well as by Washington, D.C., as Trump has to sign off on this is okay. Of course, Trump uh, has a, is big friends with Larry Ellison, who apparently has done many fundraisers for him. And uh, President Trump has said in mid-August uh, on a potential Oracle bid, 
Well, I think Oracle is a great company and I think its owner is a tremendous guy, a tremendous person. I think that Oracle would be certainly somebody that could handle it, the president said, when asked about Oracle's potential interest. Uh, so I expect Amazon to sue in federal court over unfair practices by the president in securing the Jedi OMC or the TikTok deal under unfair circumstances. <laughs> so uh, what, it's a weird story. And I, I only the reason I can think this is important to Oracle is because this becomes a big marquee social media company running on top of Oracle infrastructure, just like Zoom was a big deal for them to get. Um, I think this is a marketing play in many ways for Oracle that also makes, makes President Trump happy. And uh, they, at the end of the day, get, uh, you know, get a big marquee customer. So good for them. And, you know, one of the things we talked about Oracle's benefit is how cheap their network bandwidth is. I bet TikTok uses a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. It's a lot of videos. I'm sure they do. But do you really think that the 13 and 14-year-old girls who use TikTok really give two hoots? about whether it runs an Oracle or Azure or AWS or anybody else. I mean, it's, it's such a weird place to be in a, to try to use this as a marketing play. Uh, it's, 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 not about those, it's not about those kids. It's about, well, maybe it is because you know, Oracle sponsored some of the Marvel movies early on. I don't know if you remember Oracle logos and some of the Iron Man movies. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think it's more about Larry being able to come out on stage and say, you know, we're running one of the largest social media networks in the world on top of OCI. It's a huge win. They have 100 million monthly users in the U.S., up from 11 million in 2018. Uh, and their global user base is over 689 million. But the app still loses money. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. You know, I think it's also not just a marketing play, but it gives Oracle the opportunity to learn and, dev- and accelerate the development of their platform with a real social media uh, product customer service on their on their platform, and they're gonna it's gonna prove not just in marketing but in real life uh, that their cloud platform can deliver. That, that's fair. I mean, just like AWS went through the whole retrospective of screwing up the uh, the NFL uh, launch one year, and then next year they did it better. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but I, I don't know how many businesses really care that much that. I mean, I'm super excited that for a tech briefing at the next Oracle Cloud Next conference where they're going to show me how's the, how they host Zoom and uh, TikTok because <laughs> I'm curious. So for me as a geek, I'm, I'm kind of interested and I want to see the, I want to see the presentation about how Oracle is amazing for these two companies. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a little bit interesting, but uh, it's a, sort of a little bit of a funny story that it ended up being Oracle's deal versus Azure's. So we'll see if it gets approved. Uh, I'm not sure this one's actually a done deal yet because you still got to get Trump to approve. You still have to get the government of China to approve, as well as ByteDance has to sign off on all of this. I mean, it, it kind of stinks. I mean, obviously, Azure are a better position to manage the service than Oracle are. So it definitely stinks of uh, political fiddlings. Sue. <laughs> sue. Well, that's why I said Amazon's going to sue them in federal court. Yep. Everybody <laughs> sue over everybody. unfair practices. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is it for new news this week. Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? Sure thing. Uh, AWS cost and usage reports now offer monthly granularity. One of those announcements that makes no sense because they already gave you monthly granularity. Well, I mean, they gave you like hourly granularity. I mean, now now you can just hide your head under the covers and just look once a month to see how much you got to spend. Well, the problem (laughs) with the hourly is you can't open the file because it's so big, so you have to process it. Um, I thought before that, uh, I didn't know if they did monthly or only daily. They do hourly. Well, 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 I don't know, but yeah, I know they do hourly. Trust me, we we process those files. (laughs) I've watched my CPU go. Um, so maybe monthly is an announcement. I don't remember ever downloading the report at monthly. It is, so it is a consolidation of the report to a monthly level. So it is yeah. it is more exciting. But I just want to so, make fun of the fact that so it's always less, been monthly. Less, <laughs> less is more, I guess, in this case. Yeah, less is more. I like it. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I've, I was I was ingesting the uh, ten billion line items just this morning for for the uh, the billing report. <laughs> <laughs> Meetings readiness checker APIs help developers ensure that end users can join Amazon Chime SDK meetings from their devices. And I have a new side project to figure out how to make that API say I'm never available. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh. AWS AppSync simplifies GraphQL query prototyping in the AWS console with GraphQL Explorer and Cognito integration improvements. I mean, any developer who's trying to make GraphQL, Explorer, and Cognito work uh, is going to go incognito very quickly. 
AWS X-Ray Next. launches auto instrumentation agent for Java. Because I wasn't going to instrument it myself. So <laughs> auto is the best way. If it's that automatic, why is there a press release for it? Because it didn't exist. It wasn't automatic until <laughs> this press release. Manual instrumentation agent was announced yeah. ages yep. ago. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, the, it's like the psychic who should know that I'm ready to come in the door when she's standing outside saying, hey, I see you're here finally. We're <laughs> <laughs> waiting for you forever. Uh, AWS X-Ray also launches anomaly detection-based actionable insights into preview. Which makes me wish that they had called all of their anomaly detection stuff X-rays, because that would have been awesome, because any X-ray you're doing is looking for anomalies. Like, yeah. the missed product naming. Azure Data Explorer Kafka Connector has improved delivery guarantees, schema registry support, and Confluent certification. Unfortunately, they can't guarantee the data wasn't tampered with because they connected you to the data. So it's like Schrodinger's cat. You don't know if the data was what you thought it was because you looked at it. Oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, Jonathan. Any reference to Schrodinger's cat is going to win it. I, I get that. And yeah. I don't get it at the same time. <laughs> it's like our quantum episode all over again. Yep. <laughs> or is it? No. You can get AWS Quick Starts for OpenShift 4. I'm waiting for Downshift 5, personally. <laughs> oh. uh. Amazon Work Docs supports auto-provisioning for all directory users. I'm really more excited for auto-deprovisioning of this one because who wants to use WorkDocs? Have you ever tried to deprovision it? It's like no. impossible. It's like error. <laughs> you can't deprovision this. It's awesome. Well, it, require, it requires a proprietary AD. It requires you to set up some proprietary Workday or WorkDoc org thing. And then you finally get it, and then, yeah, I imagine deleting all There's that is a mess. There's an infinite loop of dependencies to get it. Yeah, and I can see that. It's like the only reason I ever have to open an Amazon support ticket is to figure out how to deprovision work docs. I mean, why are you provisioning work docs to begin with? That's the real question. I know. It's a bad, bad decision. You know, you test something. You're like, I'm just going to test this. I'm going to try this, and then dead. How That's why you're paying $12 every month for a, a, AD, a managed AWS AD that has one user in it. Yeah. <laughs> because you, it's just that you can't get out of it. I can't get out. I can't get out. Have, have you ever used WordDocs? I mean, I, I, honestly, I've never used WordDocs. Yeah, I've used we Google were, Docs. We were going to standardize on it, and we yeah. actually tried to use it for probably six months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, yeah, and then we uh, got back into our right minds. They went with Google Docs. <laughs> what the f- are you thinking? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean they actually. I mean, they, they have the same release platter, platter, pattern as Google. They don't. They don't ever update it. So I guess you know someone's happy with it. Fair. Moving on, automated deployment of always on availability groups uh, is available through the Azure portal. Where else would you expect it to be? <laughs> right. <laughs> I was hoping so it was going to be through my AWS portal so I could use it for RDS. I wish, I wish. Right. Not. I'm waiting for the ultra premium always on availability groups first. Yes. <laughs> Amazon CloudWatch releases a Java client library for embedded metric format. You know, if those X-ray guys and the CloudWatch guys got together, they could have done one announcement of their automation of automatically doing things for you. It's true. It could have also just built one product. Query acceleration for Azure Data Lake storage is now generally available. Yay. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean it's a tough one? Uh, query acceleration? Like, is it I mean, available? I, I like, get... I'm, I'm, I'm going to opt out of this one. You know, I, I, I like slower query. Like, queries should be should be it's methodical. a data lake they should not it's be it's a data lake do i i mean how often do i need to accelerate these queries i just don't know uh but again I, again this one needs an ultra premium yeah. query acceleration so if queries if are now faster is what i should say if i'd known you had to go ultra premium for every single azure announcement <laughs> i would have put my initials by these stores too yeah really <laughs> so i could have done that <laughs> i was like wow it's such stress like how's he gonna how's he gonna win these things like uh, 
Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports more time zones. I mean, there's only one database of time zones that exists in the world. But I'm glad they support Nepalese now. I mean, that three-fourths of an hour offset they have is a nightmare. <laughs> I was mind-blown when I heard that people actually had like half-hour time zone offsets and things. It's crazy. Yeah, there's three there's – th- so in research for this particular rattling around, I did research on this for that joke. Uh, there's three countries that have half-hour marks, and there's mm-hmm. one country that has three-quarters, which is uh, Nepal. So there you go. Nice. But, uh, which, you know, again, uh, like just UTC people. UTC. <laughs> What it, difference does it easy. make? You, you got to put seven in the morning, seven fifteen, seven thirty. It makes no difference. And if you can't keep it straight in your head, buy a wall clock. It's <laughs> on UTC time. <laughs> and the lightning round goes to Justin. Yeah, and the lightning round goes to Justin. It does. <laughs> yep. That takes me out of eleven, though. No, not. Are we scoring since Ryan's not here? Though, I mean, is, is that fair? It's fair. I mean, I'm okay staying at eleven. You snooze, you we, lose. Justin, we, we score when you're not. We score when you're not here too, so Justin twelve. <laughs> that's that's fair. I can I can say Justin twelve. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, coming up here very soon is the Women in Tech Conference on October thirteenth. Uh, October thirteenth, sorry, uh, by Manning Press. This is a fantastic opportunity to support the Women in Tech movement. Uh, learn more about it and how you can help uh, support women in technology. All available to you on October thirteenth from our partners at Manning. Anything else you guys are excited about coming up soon? Oh yes. Can, can I uh, can I do a plug and then can we add something can. to the show notes? Sure. Um, awesome. Uh, so there is an event that is being sponsored by Foghorn and HashiCorp, and it is a Kelsey Hightower uh, discussion. Um, awesome. And I would love to post a link. And get everybody to come listen. I think it's going to be super cool. I think I have that link from Derek. All right. And what was the date? He's a great speaker. Isn't he great? Kelsey Hightower? He is great. We really should get him on TCP Talks. I keep meaning to reach out to him, and I have not done that. Yeah, we should do that. After he's on the phone. It is on, se- it is on <laughs> September 24th. So. September. Yeah. Thank you. September 24th. So uh, go to the show notes. Click the link, sign up, and join us, and then it'd be great afterwards maybe to hop on our Slack and discuss what we heard. Yeah, awesome. definitely. Awesome. Join the CloudPod. Awesome. The CloudPod Slack. Yeah. If you're not part of our Slack channel, do check that out on our website, thecloudpod.net, where you can find all of our social media links to tell us we messed up something in the show. <laughs> uh, I love to hear corrections. So corrections are my favorite, <laughs> uh, especially if I'm wrong, because then I, then I really want to be corrected if I'm wrong. So definitely send us feedback or send us questions. If you want us to answer your burning questions all about all things cloud, uh, we will run a TCP, uh, ask TCP segment if you're interested. Uh, and you can ask those questions via our contact form or via our Slack channel. Or if you're shy, just send me an email at justin at the cloudpod.net. So you go. Cool. Awesome. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Good night. Yep, good night. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. (laughs) 